Good morning and welcome to Arendelle Alliance Church, our online service. My name is Pastor Joran Green. I'm the lead pastor here at Arendelle Alliance Church. And I would like to welcome you wherever you are and whatever day of the week it is that you're joining us on our online services. We're so thankful to have you. And for those wondering, we are still working towards reopening. Keep your eye on the bulletin. We'll do weekly updates as information comes. Our various teams are working rapidly to get the details in place to allow us to do a, a good video recording in the sanctuary. We've got other teams working on the flow of how people will move and the different kind of cleaning regulations that we need to follow from the government. And in the next couple of weeks, you're gonna see some fairly major changes one of the first signs that we're really moving back towards reopening is rather than me sitting and speaking to you here, you'll notice our video will shift to our sanctuary and that will mark uh, a very big step forward for us as we are moving towards reopening. We're not publishing a timeline at this point. Uh, there are enough details, we have enough groups working and we don't know where we're gonna encounter difficulties. We have a timeline in mind we're quite confident on but uh, just so you are aware, we will be moving forward. Something we need to keep in mind as we consider this fall is that things will be different at Arendelle Alliance Church. Under the current COVID guidelines, even coming together as 150 people, there are gonna be restrictions on what we can do with our children. There's gonna be restrictions on how we even sit together. So for those of you hoping it's gonna go back the way it was before COVID, I'm sorry, but it's going to be some time. Please be patient, please be in prayer, not only for us as a church, but for our government. There's a lot of challenges that uh, both provincial, even city government and our national government is facing. We need to be mindful in these days of our neighbors to the south. I know there are significant challenges happening in the United States. I, I had the opportunity, I was on a call with friends in Australia and they were actually shooting a video like this for their congregation, interviewing what's life like in Canada with COVID because in Australia they see one picture and their situation is somewhat similar to ours here in Canada. But we're struggling with something that has brought humanity to a place to realize we're not as powerful as we think we are. We don't have all of our own answers. And so in this COVID season, I wanna remind us, we know the answers. We know the great physician, we know the creator of the universe, and we have an incredible opportunity not only to spend time with God, and we're gonna to go to prayer in a moment, but also to share with our friends, with our neighbors, with our families, the hope that we have in Christ, knowing that he is all powerful and knowing that he is in control. With this in mind, I'd like to invite you to take your bulletin. I'm gonna guide us in a couple of prayer requests. And then I'm gonna encourage you, pause your video where you are. And if you're alone, pray alone. If you're with your family, my family's practices, we pause and we all take turns and we pray as a family, but I'll guide us through a few prayer requests and then take some time, pause your video, and pray as a group, and then I will take us through some announcements before worship starts. Holy God, we are so thankful that you are God, that even though we don't have answers, even though we don't know how to solve even a problem of one virus, let alone the problems we see in our world of, of hatred, of discourse, of pain, of illness, of suffering in all its forms, Lord God, thank you that you are God. And thank you that creation is not the way that you want it, that this is not our finished state. This is not the finished state of the world, but that you've promised us something better. Lord, guide us to be faithful in these days while we wait for eternity and the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, guide us in advancing your kingdom, which gives us a foretaste of what you're going to do 
here on earth. Lord, my prayer for us as a church family, that you give us courage to speak the truth and love to those around us about who this God we serve is and how when we don't know what to do and we don't have solutions that you do. Lord, we ask that you'd meet us. Father, we ask for wisdom as a church family as we consider questions like Vacation Bible School and reopening and as we look at our fall programs that are coming and and the various ministries that we believe that you've given us as a church. Guide us in how we are to do these. Lord, show us what is next for us. I'm, I'm mindful of that a congregation in Australia in Gundy. Pray a blessing over them as they seek to be your hands and feet in their community, as we seek to be your hands and feet in Saskatoon and the various places represented by those who are watching. Father, this morning we think of our international workers we think of Louise and Melva and ask for your blessing over them. We think of Dori Manu and ask for your blessing over her as well. And as we go to prayer time personally, Father, we're going to lift those requests before you. We think of our quizzing uh, internationals. It sounds strange to talk about it happening, but it's happening. But it's going to be online with our teams in their own homes in various places all over North America, seeking to lift up your name and study your word and bring you honor and glory in a way that they've never done before. Lord, we think of our youth of this church. We think of our children's ministries. We think of our seniors who aren't able to maybe get out the way that they want to. We think of those who are going to work in a time of uncertainty. Father, we ask that you'd meet us as a congregation. And Lord, now we take time in our own homes, in prayer. Holy Spirit, would you guide us in how to pray, what to pray, and would you meet us? And by way of a couple of announcements this week, just to make you aware, if you would please be in prayer, check your bulletin. We are attempting to get the prayer request before you. You'll see that we've got our international workers highlighted there. We've got some of our local Alliance churches in our district highlighted. But also, and I alluded to in my prayer, the uh, national quiz meet will be happening this coming week. We've got a couple of our Arendelle youth who are involved. We've got one of our Arendelle uh, college students who's going to also be helping to coach with that. So please be in prayer for them. Uh, it's it's strange days. The gentleman who's hosting, it's a friend of mine from Long Island, New York, and he and his wife have been hunkered down in their apartment for the last several months, basically uh, in isolation because of the challenges of COVID in their community. And yet they felt we've, we must continue with this quizzing ministry and they have put together uh, a virtual quiz meet. And I don't know if there'll be the possibility of watching it or not, but uh, if we get details, we'll pass that along. Also, Please uh, be in prayer for our COVID team and uh, the other prayer in the bulletin. I'm not aware of any other announcements. We're actually into our summer season now and into a little bit of a different phase. In your bulletin, there'll be a mention of a kid's ministry that's going to happen in place of our VBS this summer. If you and your family are interested in it, please feel free to email the office, but also know we will be calling around and setting up times with our various church families. Love you, praying for you. And now we turn it over to our worship team.
be reading in Acts chapter 7, verse 1 to 36, CSB version today. Stephen's sermon. Are these things true? The high priest asked. Brothers and fathers, he replied, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there, were carried back to Shechem, and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamer in Shechem. As the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a king, a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so that they wouldn't survive. At that time, at this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The next day, he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for forty years. Good morning and welcome to this week's message. My name is Pastor Joran Green. I'm the lead pastor here at Arendelle Alliance Church. And we are going to continue our series in the book of Acts. We're now in Acts chapter 7. To orient ourselves again, we've seen the start of the early church as the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2. We've watched the blessing that has come on it. We've watched some of the challenges they have faced as sin begins to creep its way into the church. And the incident with Ananias and Sapphira. A couple of times now, we've had the Sanhedrin get directly involved with the apostles, threaten them, and actually punish them. A little bit of jail time as well in saying, do not preach in this name Jesus. And then last week we looked in Acts chapter 6, how a situation came up where the widows were not being properly cared for. And the apostles recognized we can't do all the work. Our call is to the word and to prayer, and we must focus on what God has for us. And we get our first committee, our first delegation. And the authority that they then give to these deacons to make sure the widows are looked after. Interestingly, we started talking last time about how men like Stephen look remarkably like the apostles. They're gifted, and Stephen is doing miracles and able to explain from the scriptures who Jesus Christ is. And so we, we often think of waiting tables in a very narrow sense, and yet here we find these men serving practically with their hands are also gifted in, in a multitude of other ways, which is a reminder to us of how diverse God's gifting is on us as individuals and us as a community. Well, now this week we're in Acts chapter 7. Stephen's been brought up on charges. The charge is that he has spoken against God and against Moses. And the Sanhedrin now has him on trial, much as they did the apostles. And there is certainly a, a sense here that it's similar to what happened to Jesus. The difference being this is a daylight trial. This is a legitimate trial in contrast to Jesus that technically was not according to the law. The irony there, they accused Jesus, you violated the law, yet they violate the law themselves and how they tried him. Now they're going to hear this case of Stephen. And as we come to this text, we're going to be introduced to a couple of ideas. And one of the ideas I want us to be thinking about first and foremost is, how do we defend and explain the gospel of Jesus Christ? Here's Stephen, whose primary job is to look after the widows. His primary ministry is not that of speaking my primary ministry is primarily speaking, praying, meeting with people. Stevens was 
serving the needs of folks, and yet we find that he still is able to speak and he's still able to teach and he's, his gifting is so diverse, but he now brings this new element to it as he demonstrates it to us. What does it look like to explain the gospel of Jesus in a very practical, defensible, intelligent sort of a way? We use the term apologetics for this kind of idea. Uh, one of my favorite classes many years ago in college was apologetics. How do we intelligently present the gospel to non-believers in a way that forces them to think and in a way that invites the Spirit of God to challenge their hearts and souls? And I, I love the fact that Stephen is our first apologist, not one of the apostles. They, they've walked with Jesus, they've learned at Jesus' feet, and yet we see how the Holy Spirit has gifted and equipped this man. He's on trial, but interestingly, the ones that are really on trial here are going to be the Sanhedrin. So with this in mind, Acts chapter 7, and would you bow with me as we begin. Gracious God, we ask that you'd meet us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you come and instruct our hearts wherever we are, that as we look in your word, that you'd show us what you'd have us to learn, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would change us. And would you be glorified, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. The charge that's been heard, Sanhedrin has been told, he blasphemed against God and against Moses. Acts 7 verse 1, are these things true, the high priest asks. This question is fundamental. If the charges are true, under Jewish law, Stephen is deserving of death. And they would have the right, and the Romans would actually allow the Jews, under some circumstances, to execute one of their own countrymen for this kind of an offense. These are serious charges. Stephen is on trial for his life. And yet, as I already alluded to, he actually puts the Sanhedrin on trial. Uh, one of the expressions we sometimes use, the best defense is a good offense. That's not always a wise course of action. And we could debate that course of action. Was Stephen wise in what he does here? I want to hold that question off actually for quite a few weeks because I think it's a very important question, but we don't actually get to answer that question for a few chapters as we see what the Spirit of God does because of Stephen's obedience and faith. I would argue Stephen does what God calls him to, but there's a caution here for us. Sometimes our obedience comes at a high price. Are these things true, the high priest asks. And in answering, brothers and sisters, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, that's verse 2. And he begins now to tell us who it is that he worships and what it is he believes in. Here, verse 3, God's call on Abraham, leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. The charges that he's spoken against God and Moses, so he goes back to the very first man who walks faithfully with God in Jewish thought that they would look back to as one of their fathers, that being Abraham, and points out God comes to him. Leave your country, your relatives, come to the land that I will show you. I love the call of Abraham for two reasons. First off, God comes to Abraham and essentially says, pack everything up, start moving, and I'll show you where you're going on the way. We talk about what does faith look like. Faith means he steps out not knowing where the end journey is, but he knows God's asked him to go. I have a strange sense of humor. The other side of this, I imagine, what was that conversation like with his wife? Honey, God met me today. We're going to move. And she would reply back, uh, you are my master. Lead me. We will go because Sarah calls him master. Where are we going? I don't know yet. God's going to show us as we go. 
I love that conversation. And when we do premarital counseling, sometimes we talk in those kind of terms. It, it reflects his certainty and his trust of God. And when we ask, why did God love Abraham so much? When we put it in those kind of terms, I'm going to pack up everything I have. I don't know where I'm going to go. I'm going to follow the call of God and I'm going to take my family with me and they're going to follow with me really helps to emphasize who this man Abraham is. Well, the story doesn't stop there because later on in verse five, he didn't give him an inheritance in it. This is speaking of the land, not even a foot of ground because he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. And I'm fascinated by this because this whole situation that Abraham now finds him in, finds himself in where God comes and calls him and leads him to this promised land, but does not give him a piece of it, but says, I'm going to do this for your descendants. The promise of God comes to Abraham when Abraham has no certainty or no guarantee that he'll ever even enter into its blessing. Abraham's not even Jewish. There's an irony force. They call him the father. They look at him, Father Abraham. Yet technically, he's not Jewish because the Israelites start with his great-grandsons. Great-great-grandsons even, arguably. The sons of Jacob or Israel. There is a little bit of a tension that sometimes gets brought out. If we go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, when the call of God happens, Abraham's actually already in Haran and what uh, Stephen's alluding to here, we discover God actually began to call, and, and we don't know all the details of it, but other Jewish historians and scholars pick up on, God's actually, it's, over a series of years, is calling Abraham, and, and he winds up traveling some, and they wind up in Ur of the Chaldeans, and God calls him, and God calls him, and that call even to Haran was by the leading of God in preparation, and we see Abraham stepping up more and more in faith, and I love the fact that when God promises him and Abraham steps out in faith. The promise has not even been sealed with the covenant yet. But he trusts God for what he can't see, what he can't lay his hands on, and he walks with God. It's a, this incredible challenge to us, this incredible picture of how do we respond to God? Obedience that comes before the covenant and comes before blessing. And sometimes when God comes to us and asks us things, we think we know what he's going to do, but we don't know for sure. Is my obedience conditional on God's blessing? Or is my obedience conditional on my trust of God and his love and faithfulness? And conditional on my trust that he is good and his plan is good, even when I do not see it, even when I do not understand it. This opens a whole other dialogue and conversation we can have. And anytime I think in these terms, I think Jeremy Camp, Christian musician, and quite a number of years ago wrote a song called I still believe, and it was written in the hospital room of his first wife after she passed away from cancer. He married her, she was in remission, she relapsed on the honeymoon and was dead within months. I believe they've just made a movie of this story. And he is now remarried and they have children. But that song he wrote, I still believe, even when I cannot see, I still believe. Abraham models this for us. He trusts God. Well, Stephen doesn't stop with Abraham because, of course, he also moves on to Joseph. He, he alludes to Isaac, and incidentally, even Genesis doesn't spend a lot of time on Isaac, who seems to walk much in the footsteps of his father, Abraham, but moves on to Joseph. Verse 9, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. 
there's a not so subtle, there's a not so subtle challenge here in what Stephen says to the Sanhedrin. Because we've seen consistently in Acts, the motivation of the Sanhedrin has been jealousy. They've not asked, is Jesus Christ the Son of God? They've not asked, how did the apostles do miracles? How did Jesus do miracles? They have been jealous. They have been offended because they have been called to account. They have not engaged with the deeper theological questions. And Stephen now points out, Joseph's brothers were jealous. And so they sell him into slavery. But again, the story of Joseph, as God takes him to Egypt, as probably about a 17, 18 year old, we're not sure how old. And I think many of us know the story of Joseph's time in Egypt where he's first sold into Potiphar's house and things go well, he rises to the top. And then Potiphar's wife intervenes in his life and Joseph acting honorably gets himself into trouble. Even though he's completely innocent, winds up in prison again rises to the top. And out of that situation, Stephen then goes on to talk about how Pharaoh then invites him to be involved. We know how the famine hit, and Joseph's the one who had, war had interpreted the warning dream that Pharaoh had received, and that famine that now comes. And in the midst of the famine, as that whole region is starving, Joseph's brothers are forced to come to Egypt, and Stephen picks up the story, how they come to Egypt, they don't recognize him, and then in verse 13, the second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And again, there's this not so subtle challenge here, because just as jealousy has blinded the Sanhedrin, he is also subtly hinting, and he will be much more explicit with them at the end of chapter 7, we're going to cover that next week. The challenge, just as Joseph's brothers did not recognize Joseph, you did not recognize the Son of God. And Joseph actually becomes, uh, we would call it a typology or a prototype or a forerunner of Jesus Christ as Messiah. So that when Jesus comes and jealousy drives people to reject him and they don't recognize him for who he is, we get this glimpse. This has been happening all through history, all the way back to the patriarchs. Just as Joseph was rejected in jealousy, just as Joseph was not recognized till he revealed himself, the same thing is true of Jesus Christ. And Stephen, again, is setting the stage so the Sanhedrin can hear the gospel and has a chance to understand who Jesus Christ is. He's on trial for his life. But his presentation here is for the sake of their souls. And so the lives are at stake here, but maybe not the ones that are most immediate and obvious. We think it's Stephen, it's actually the lives of the Sanhedrin. The response of Abraham was one of faith, even though he didn't see the blessing. The response here with Joseph, he is continually faithful. He does nothing wrong, despite how he's treated. Now he reveals himself to his brothers, and we see that blessing of God. And then he turns his recount to the story of Moses. The charges, you blaspheme God, you blaspheme Moses. He has established who God is and how God met Abraham in Ur and Haran and had been calling him. There's no indication here he's blasphemed God. He talks that history. Now he moves to Moses, which is the other place where the charge is. And that charge speaking against Moses would be specifically the law of Moses. He now takes us to the life of Moses and reminds us that after the time of Joseph, there's intervening years. And then a Pharaoh comes who doesn't know the history, sees the Israelites, 
mistreats the Israelites. And Moses is born into a time of great darkness and tribulation for the Israelites. And I use that word tribulation very deliberately because when we look at what happens to Israel in the time of Moses, it becomes kind of a foretaste or a hint of what will the last days be like. And it's remarkable when you look at the plagues on Egypt, how many of those plagues will be repeated in the last days prior to the second coming of Jesus. The Israelites are mistreated. They are treated as slaves and as worse than slaves. And uh, Stephen here reminds us, verse 22, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and his actions. And going back to verse 21, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So against the backdrop of the persecution of the Israelites, we have this favored son who's been born. And Moses is now talked about in Stephen's speech. Just as Joseph was not recognized by his brothers, Stephen says something really interesting here. He points out in verse 23, when he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, this is verse 24, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him but they did not understand. Just as Joseph rescues his people and they don't recognize him, Moses now steps into the role of deliverer, of rescuer. He's 40 years of age. He's grown up in privilege. He's grown up knowing Pharaoh personally and knowing the court system there. And the Israelites reject him. The next day, verse 26, he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, my uh, men, you were brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside saying, who appointed you a ruler and judge over us? He's rejected. As Joseph was rejected by his brothers, Moses is rejected by the Israelites. And Stephen's charge at the end of his speech, at the end of chapter 7, you rejected the author of life. So we have this ongoing pattern. While Moses is at 40 at this point, he now flees into the wilderness as uh, Stephen continues the story, starting at verse 29. As he moves into the wilderness, he goes, he tends sheep for 40 years. He has a wilderness experience. As I was, as I was looking at this again, it, was, it struck me that for the 120 years that Moses lives, he spends 80 years of it wandering in the wilderness. He's a role model for faith and obedience to God. And there's a reminder in Moses' life, the only time he, he really experienced wealth and, and position and authority where it was comfortable and easy was when he was not doing what God called him to do directly. As he walked faithfully with God, those 80 years were difficult years. He spent most of them in the wilderness, some of them fleeing from the Egyptians and seeing the Red Sea. Or walking with the Israelites while they are constantly sitting against God and saying bad things about him, this challenge. And it's just a reminder to us again, sometimes the call of God is challenging, but there's also that blessing that comes with it. Because when we talk about those who will stand in the presence of God and those who will be nearest to the throne of God, is Moses not on a very short list of those who are closest to God? Keep in mind, the same Moses who will wander for, the, for years in the wilderness is one of only a couple who will appear at the transfiguration. One of actually only two who will appear with Jesus. And Peter will see Elijah and Moses there. 
with Jesus. And we actually have hint that it's quite possible he will come again as one of those two prophets in Revelation as well. When we look at the miracles of those two prophets, Moses and Elijah, call of God came at a high price, but the reward is so much greater. And yet, he only has a promise of it. He doesn't live in the reality of it. Well, the story goes on. As he's in the wilderness, Moses sees the burning bush and he goes over. And verse 33, the Lord said, take off your sandals from your feet. The ground where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come to set them free. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Was Moses called to be God's deliverer when he was 40? Moses seems to think so. And we're actually forced to ask, at what point did he know God wanted to use him as a deliverer? And yet, at 40 years of age, how he handles the situation becomes clear. He's not ready. He kills a man. He's actually a murderer. And I don't know how he and God dealt with that. I leave that in the hands of God. But there is really very clearly the sense of timing. He was not ready to be what God had called him. Just as God starts to call Abraham seemingly very early and small step, small step, bigger, bigger, bigger calls, bigger challenges, bigger promises. Moses at 40 was not ready. He knew where God was going to take him. 40 years in the wilderness. Now he encounters God and God says, go. Verse 35a, this Moses whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you as ruler and judge, this is the one God sent his ruler and deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And again, Stephen's not so subtle challenge to the Sanhedrin. Your forefathers rejected Joseph. Your forefathers rejected Moses. You claim to love Moses, and yet they didn't follow. And he's setting up to explain, you have rejected the author of life, the Messiah, the Son of God himself. Just as your forefathers, so now you. And he will develop this idea later in this chapter. And we're going to actually save that for next week. Acts chapter 7, there's a lot going on here. We have just skimmed over the surface of it. If you were to come to college, I believe I take four to five hours on this one chapter. It is so pivotal in the book of Acts. And I encourage you to spend some time devotionally in it. There is this richness in Stephen's presentation. We call Stephen the first apologist. The first true Christian thinker to say, here's who Jesus is. Here is how we understand him historically. And here's why faith in Jesus is the only thing that makes sense. Come the first apologist. We have modern day apologists. There are many who spend their time explaining the gospel in ways that people go, I understand and invite the spirit to guide people in all truth. We'll talk more about that. But what do we do with this first part of Acts? And I'm sorry, because I feel like we're leaving it hanging, but we are, because next sermon's going to be longer. There's so much here. But what do we do with these first 36 verses as we look at the life of Abraham, the life of Joseph, the life of Moses, as Stephen is on trial for his life? I want to suggest a couple of things. First off, the reminder that God is sovereign and works where and when and with whom he wants, how he wants. When he calls Abraham, Abraham was not an Israelite. The Jews say, well, we are the children of Abraham. We are Jews. Abraham was not Jewish. He's the forefather of the Jews. He was living in a pagan country. God, by his declaration, makes Abraham part of his family, just as he calls us today. 
and I've, I've alluded to already in Ephesians. Time and again, we see this idea of the mystery of God. And, and in Ephesians, Paul very clearly says the mystery of God is that he has taken different people groups and have made them one people according to his will and his purpose. And the secret, this mystery that's now made known in Jesus Christ is that God loves everyone. God can call anyone. And in Jesus Christ, we all stand in the same salvation. We all stand in the same grace and mercy. It's the same death. It's the same blood. It's one spirit, one Lord, one Savior, one faith, one baptism. Why? Because God is sovereign. And connected to the sovereignty of God, Stephen shows us very clearly when Jesus comes, when he's born, when he does his ministry, and in his death, God had this planned all along. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, Moses' own writing, the promise is made. The serpent will strike his heel, and he will crush his head. And we get the hint, the seeds of the gospel. And that gospel will be gradually revealed throughout the Old Testament. So that when we get to Isaiah 53, we get the description of the suffering servant. And it can only be Jesus Christ himself. God has had a plan all along. He has not always been clear with us what his plan is, but the plan is there. He always acts according to his will and his purpose. He's never surprised. Do we trust him? That's the question. Do we trust his choices? Which takes us to our second challenge. Because God is sovereign and God will work out his plan, will we respond to the call of God? in whatever that looks for our lives. First and foremost, the call of God, repent and be baptized. I was thinking of this last night, Matthew 28. Go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. First question for us as we ask, are we responding to the call of God? Have we accepted Jesus Christ, not only as Savior, but also as Lord? Do we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts? that God raised him from the dead? Do we surrender to the work of Jesus Christ? Do we do what we believe is right in the sight of God according to his word and the lead of his spirit and the wisdom of God's people? Have we accepted salvation? Are we doing what God has trained and equipped us to do? Stephen is on trial for his life and yet he's doing what God called him to do. The task that God gave him to do was so that the apostles could do their job because in the body of Christ, we are all equal. We cannot take pieces out of the body in responding to the call of God. Are we walking in faithful obedience? If we've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, are we now following through on what we know God wants us to do, what he wants us to be? Are we surrendering to the fruit of the Spirit daily? Are we asking Jesus to make us more holy day by day? Are we seeking ways to advance the kingdom of God? Are we willing to trust, as Abraham did, the promise comes, I will bless you. The promise to us comes, we have eternal life with Jesus Christ. If that is true, what on this side of eternity is more valuable than eternity with God? If Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for our sins, resurrected, and is now seated at the right hand, interceding for us and coming back to take his bride, us, the church home, what threat in the world holds any meaning? What challenge in this world holds any meaning in light of walking faithful obedience to God? And yet, it's hard because we have the promise. But the promise is sure. But do we live like the promise is sure? Moses 
Abraham, Joseph are held up as examples of men who trusted God and acted accordingly. Do we trust God? Do we trust his sovereignty? Let's pray. Holy God, thank you for the example of Stephen. As even though he's on, his, on, on a trial for his life, he speaks the truth to the Sanhedrin. Lord, when you'd have us speak the truth, give us the words to say. But I'm more mindful here even of the clear, clear teaching of Stephen. You are the sovereign God who has the plan. And you've always had the plan. And your plan will always happen. Lord, give us the faith to believe and the eyes to see and the hearts to trust. And Lord, I look at Stephen's example. I look at the example that many holds up who trust you and act accordingly. And I'm challenged, Lord. I'm challenged on behalf of all of us as a church. I'm challenged as a husband, as a father. Does my life reflect that I trust you and I act according to what I believe? Holy Spirit, would you guide us? Holy Spirit, would you come and show us places maybe where we don't believe, where we don't trust, that we could repent? For anyone who's watching who has not yet been, been willing to surrender to the salvation and lordship of Jesus, Lord, would you make them uncomfortable? Would you stir their hearts and show them the truth that forgiveness is only in you, eternal life is only in you, meaning is only in you, and that you are the true God. And for those of us who have called on your name, Lord, I know some have surrendered and surrendered daily. Remind them that you love them. Remind them of the blessing as they walk in faithfulness. Give them the courage that even when they cannot see, they still believe, knowing that your promises are sure. Your promises are guaranteed. Your promises are good. And Lord, for those who are, of us who are struggling, give us courage to walk with you faithfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
match my base. Like this. <laughs> 